0: on zoom, but we'll have to go ahead and get started. Welcome back to our study of Christology, and again we are using uh, David Scare's book by that same title Christology in the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series Volume 6. We have been inching our way along and that rather purposefully so that we're being very careful to define our terms as we uh, progress. Now if you'll flip back to the table of contents, You'll see that uh, chapter 1 is Christology in the post-enlightenment era, and we're going to continue through chapter 1 today. The point has been to, to contextualize us. You know, no theology is done in a vacuum. Uh, theology is done in a context, and we need to know what our post-enlightenment context is and looks like where we've been and where we've come, and so we've, we've traced from the major councils that dealt with Christology and Christological questions onto the post-Enlightenment treatment of that, particularly on the Protestant side, and we've seen how that's gotten ugly. I think we've also seen, and this is, this is something I even have to like shake loose from my own mind once in a while, the Christological controversies weren't resolved. They're ongoing. We sometimes have this sense that they were resolved with Nicaea, or if not Nicaea, then certainly Chalcedon, and by the fifth or maybe the sixth century they're gone. What you see is that that's just not the case. The doctrinal standard is defined and remains, but the controversies continue in one form or another. And so that's what we're looking at here in chapter 1. Now, again, looking at the table of contents, if you look at chapter 2, that's the past and present Christological controversies. Well, we cover much the same ground. What I'm going to suggest for for chapter 2 is that I'll I'll just hunt and peck out specific uh, passages for us to look at that further strengthen our understanding of Christology and the and the controversies that have have come about over the centuries. You know, in this first in this first chapter, Dr. Scare has us focusing on the distinction between Christology from above and Christology from below. And so we'll continue that pursuit today. In the second chapter, really what he's dealing with is this modern, quest for the historical jesus mostly 19th and 20th century where the where the our focus has been on this pseudoscience of trying to lo- locate and figure out who the historical jesus is to the result that nobody's sure that the historical jesus hardly existed at all and if he existed we're not sure about anything that he said at least we being academia or Western scholarship and so that's a that's a huge problem and really the move of the late 20th and 21st centuries has been to divorce ourselves from that and regain an a, a theological and ecclesial, ecclesiological reading and understanding of the scriptures an assumption of the historic person of Jesus and then what it is that the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures reveal about him So that's chapter 2, as we're going to be sort of identifying and then recovering from this quest for the historical Jesus that has so eclipsed everything or distorted everything that in in Christendom today, Christology is a mess. So that's chapters 1 and chapter 2. And again, my point in bringing this up right now is simply to say that as we go into chapter 2, I'm going to just simply select portions of the text for us to take a look at. Um, those that I feel are helpful for the continuation of our study. And then perhaps around chapter four, where Dr. Scare introduces us to the, or excuse me, chapter three, where Dr. Scare introduces us to the pre existence and incarnation of the Son of God, there we'll slow back down and take a line by line approach. So I simply just wanted to give you that um, in case you were feeling bogged down by these historical persons and controversies. We will, in the next chapter, move a little more lightly and quickly. So, page 5 is where we left off. And if you remember, over on page 4, we've got this list of names from Moltmann to Boltmann to von Harnack to Pannenberg and all the problems on the Protestant side of Christology. Then over on page 5, we shift gears and we start looking at some of the Roman theologians, the, the non-Protestant theologians, um, who similarly have are, are influential you know, in the 20th century. Um, and have similar problems, um, although these names are much less important, must le- much less influential than those over on page 4. So last week we were introduced to uh, Schoenenbert on page 5, and simply let's pick up with that, with that line that introduces his name. In his book, The Christ, he claims that the man Jesus gives a personality to the Word of God. And so, what has happened here, again, we can just use our very simple rubric of these three points. True God, true man, one person. So, if you have a capital W word of God, the the Logos of God, and it doesn't have a personality, it's not true God. And so, that's precisely the critique here, is that in his Christology, he ends up with a Christ that is human, but not divine. So, Let's pick up uh, right, after, right after that sentence where Scare writes, The humanity of Jesus does not allow for the incarnation of the divine Logos. In a way, the problem of a separate human personality addressed by Schunenberg was faced by the Council of Ephesus and its condemnation of Nestorius. Nestorius wanted to maintain the historical personality of Jesus, But he did it by posing two persons, one divine and one human. So again, we're just reinforcing here our understanding of uh, Nestorianism as one of the arch heresies, if you will, um, because it denies the, you know, Nestorius wants to confess that God is true, or that Jesus is true God, true man. But he does so in such a way that it's, it's really hard to see that they're one person. In fact, it looks like two persons sort of glued together. That's Nestorianism. So we're sort of reinforcing that as we compare Nestorianism to Schoenenbert, and we're seeing some similarities here. Scare continues, Nestorius spoke of one prosopon of Christ, one person of Christ. And again, that's all that prosopon means. We defined that at length, I think, last week, and, um, but prosopon just means person. So Nestorius spoke of one prosopon of Christ, one person of Christ, one object of perception, one external undivided appearance but each nature is distinct and not identical with the prosopon thus he speaks of mary as christotokos the bearer of christ but not as the theotokos the bearer of god so look at that distinction that's you know and, and this is where <laughs> mariology if you will is christology because if you're going to what 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 you have to say in this respect about mary is less about Mary and and more about Christ. Is Mary the Christotokos, the Christ-bearer? That's what that word means in in Greek. You can see Christos and tokos, but um, the Christotokos, the bearer of Christ. Well, of course she's the bearer of Christ. Um, Is she the Theotokos? There's the Theos, the God-bearer. Well, is Christ true God? If Yes, then she is the God-bearer, the Theotokos. Now again, see how this title for her, the, both the Christotokos and the Theotokos, the Theotokos that these uh, have less to do with Mary than they have to do with Christ. Okay? Is Christ true God? Yes, then she's the God-bearer, the Theotokos. Okay? But Nestorius is unwilling to say that she's the Theotokos. Why? Because... He has a problem there in terms of the, seeing the person of Christ as one person, such that he is true God and true man. And the way that you could say, well, is Christ God? See, Nestorius would be, would be uncomfortable with that. He would say, well, the divine nature is God, and the human nature is man. And if you just repeated the question to him, Yes, but is Christ God? He would not want to go there. He would again assert that the divine nature is God, the human nature is Christ. And so so there's a problem there. It starts to look like two boards glued together. It starts to look like two persons, not one person. And that really comes to a head in his unwillingness to confess Mary as the Theotokos, the bearer of God. All right. So, Scare continues Nestorius, in preserving the unique characteristics of both the divine and human natures, had sacrificed the unity of his person. The contemporary Christology from below simply does not take the pre existent divine nature into account. To preserve the human nature, Schoenenbert eliminates the divine nature altogether, which is, again, what you do when you say that. Um, the man Jesus gives his personality to the word or logos of God, you're saying then the part of Christ that is God isn't true or fully God. So, thus, Scare says, you know, to preserve the human nature, Schoenberg eliminates the divine nature altogether. A position which was not an option even for the heretics condemned by the ecumenical councils. And here is yet, you know, one more point where the councils, they, I mean, they, they stated things, but that's not the end of the controversy. People disagree with that what the councils had to say all the way up to the present um, inside of Roman Catholicism and outside of it. So then Scare says, this approach characterizes most modern approaches to Christology. So again, I think he selected Schoenberg because he's representative of a type, out, even outside of Protestantism, but a representative of a, of a type of theologian who is so advocating for the humanity of Christ as to deny the divinity of Christ. And there are other such examples that Scare is going to bring up for us. The next is Edward Schillebeeks, uh, which I have no idea if that's how to pronounce it, but doesn't that look like it? It's kind of a fun name, Edward Schillebeeks. Well, he attempts to harmonize Roman Catholicism's commitment to the doctrine of the Trinity with his conviction that Christology must be approached, quote-unquote, from below. This allows him to speak of the Trinity from the perspective of Christology. It is true that the question of how the Trinity is revealed, there's your key word, it is true that the question of how the Trinity is revealed to humanity must be answered from the perspective of Christology. Without Christ, you don't have the Trinity revealed. So it's true enough that the revelation of the Trinity is an aspect of Christology. Next sentence from Scare. The revelatory question cannot be confused, however, with the ontological one, which lies at the heart of the Christology of Nicaea and Chalcedon. So the ontological reality of who is Christ, okay, um, you can't, you can't start with who is Christ from below. Christ is man, okay, and man probably to the exclusion of what is divine. And then from there, how do we get to the Trinity or how do we grasp the Trinity? I mean, you're going you're gonna to end up already just by that approach, you're going to end up saying something not orthodox. Scare continues, Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God, the divine Logos even though his knowledge comes to us only by means of his incarnation Shillebeeks is unable to move beyond speaking of christ's divinity in functional terms as the one in whom god gives us salvation so again you speak of christ as the revealer of the trinity you speak of and thus god you speak of christ as the savior of humanity and thus god but you're talking about his function either as uh, the revelator or as the savior, and thus you're attaching this label to Christ. Because he's these things, he's God. But that's different than the ontological question, that is the question of the very being or essence of Christ. Is he in his very being and essence God? And that's what Chilabiks and his folks have a hard time confessing. They wouldn't confess that. They would say he's only God insofar as he reveals God. He's only God insofar as he expresses God's desire to save all human beings. And so the definition of Christ as God is one that is a function, not of ontology. Hopefully you can see that distinction. It's, it's a little bit of a fine distinction. But um, the long and the short is a failure to confess that Jesus is, in and of himself, true God. What if Jesus never, I mean, hypothetically, what if Jesus never revealed himself to humanity? What if Jesus never saved humanity? Would Jesus still be true God? And the answer is yes, for us, for orthodoxy. But for uh, Shillebeeks it would it would be no, or it would be confusing, or he wouldn't want to answer it. All right, next paragraph on page six. Another well-known Roman Catholic theologian, Hongs Kung, which I actually, for my mileage, think he's much more well-known than either Schunenberg or Schillebeek's, uh, quite popular, um, especially instrumental in Vatican II, and uh, not the present pope, but the previous pope, quite sympathetic to him. Although, as we'll see, uh, <laughs> he has been identified as a false teacher within Rome. Another well-known Roman Catholic theologian, Hongs Kung, who has been disqualified by the pope as a teacher of doctrine at the University of Tubingen because of his theological position, attributes to Christ only a functional deity, So, very similar to what we just discussed. He is willing to use the Christological language of the Nicene Creed, but interprets this only in the functional sense of God revealing Himself in Jesus. As radical as these Roman Catholic theologians are, they are bound to tradition in a way that Protestants are not. And as a result, they make some attempt to incorporate the terminology of the ancient councils in their functional Christology. In other words, the Protestants can just make a a breach and a break and say, who cares, all the councils were wrong. Uh, The Enlightenment's come and proved all of that foolish, and I and I alone am your theological guide and savior. Rome can't do that. Rome has to at least pay lip service to the councils and and traditions that have gone before. And so, what what is Rome's way of of continuing to confess these historical creeds? Uh, Reinterpreting them, loading them with meaning that is alien to that meaning uh, with which they were imbued in the beginning. So, that's certainly the case for Hans Kung, anyway. All right. Scare continues, such a view may be called a Christology of revelation because Christ reveals God without being God himself. Again, you can see the difference between the the functional question and the ontological question. Is Jesus himself God? Um, is either uh, denied or it's not a question they're willing to answer, simply restating that because he reveals God, he is God. It's a functional definition. All right, but like their Protestant counterparts, Scare continues, these Roman Catholic theologians are never able to move successfully from a Christology from below to one from above. Their approach may be more deceptive. Their use of traditional Christological language of the creeds hides their true intentions. Any Christology which goes no further than a discussion of the historical Jesus places itself in opposition to the Christology of the Scriptures as well as that of the early church. Christology from below was popularized by the late Anglican bishop and and Cambridge Don John A.T. Robinson. He's a 20th century guy. 1919 to 1983 are his dates. and You can see that we've moved from Rome to uh, Anglicanism. In his books, Honest to God and the Human Face of God, he describes the divine and human qualities of Jesus with traditional language. But when he speaks of Jesus as the personal representative of God, um, here quoting Robinson, he stands in God's place. He is God to us and for us. End quote. He is setting up a different Christology from that of Chalcedon. And you can see what Christology he's setting up. It's very similar to the functional view. We might just make a distinction here and say it's, it's office. Because he stands in the stead and, and by the command of God, so to speak, he must be God. Because he is in the office of God, he must be God um, to us and for us. You see the sleight of hand there? Is he God in himself? No. Is he God to us and for us? Yes. Is that is that Chalcedonian Christology? No, a long way off. All right. I mean, this is very similar, like, to the way Lutherans talk about the pastoral office. That that hearing the hearing the pastor, you know, you can be as certain as if you're hearing from the mouth of God because the pastor stands in the stead and by the command of God, in the office of Christ, in order to speak God's words to you. Um, but to simply attribute and say that that's no more than Christ is, or, or that's the only way in which Christ is God, is because he stands in the place of God and speaks on behalf of God, what a terribly shallow Christology that is. And it makes Christ no different than, than, than any other Christian or, or pastor in specific. So, here we see um, yet another failure uh, to confess Christ as true God in himself, in his person. All right, let's continue with Scare. In the last years of his life, Robinson gave up his attempts at dogmatics and devoted himself to New Testament studies where his views were surprisingly conservative. As a theologian, Robinson was not a particularly original thinker and only synthesized the views of others. A lack of clarity and an inability to grapple with the materials may have been his real problem. To him, nevertheless, belongs the credit of bringing views into the open which the majority of scholars have held for nearly two centuries, so again, we're post-Enlightenment, so that the laity could understand. In other words, these views of Christ have been, have been going on in academic theology for 200 years since the time of the Enlightenment, but, but really, as Scare's arguing here, not since the middle of the 20th century have these really been brought home and brought to bear to the people in the pews, in a way that is accessible to them and in a way that they themselves then can embrace and confess themselves. So, um, Jesus is God only because he stands in the place of God and is therefore God to us and God for us. That kind of thing. All right? So, again, all of this is not Christianity um, but rather is is certainly uh, where we are today in terms of the broader sweep of Christology. All right, again, invitation to those of you joining on Zoom that if you do have a question or want to make a comment, um, feel free to wave your hand in the camera and I'll get to you as I'm able. Otherwise, we will simply keep marching along. So, page 7, the last paragraph there. Scare writes, The issue of Christology from below came to inflammatory expression in the myth of God incarnate. As occurs in any collection of essays from a group of authors, it lacks unity of thought, except (laughs) in its consistent denial of orthodox Christology and its substitution of a Christology from below. A debate began on British soil and soon raged throughout the English-speaking world. Francis Young, one of the contributors, quote-unquote discovered that even the Apostle Paul did not have an incarnational theology. Oh my goodness. Uh, John Hick, the editor, finds the incarnation pernicious because it implies that there is no salvation outside of Christianity. <laughs> yeah, when when Orthodox biblical theology is pernicious, precisely for being itself. Okay, well. He calls for a recognition of God's work through other religions. Ah, yes, now we embrace the, uh, the sign of our times here that, that God is supposedly at work in all religions and there are many ways to God. And, of course, uh, standing in complete contrast to that is, is the exclusivity of Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. Okay. The myth was answered by the truth of God incarnate. um, A subsequent volume in the debate published in 1979 and appropriately entitled Incarnation and Myth. The debate continued. Put the issue squarely on the table. Brian Hebelwaite's article asks, Are the authors of the myth still Christians? (laughs) Uh, If you you can't get a chuckle out of that, you're probably going to find at least the formal study of theology and Christology boring. But yeah, when people are so off the rails, you have to actually pause and stop and say, okay, are these people even Christians anymore? It's worth a chuckle. Well, the real question, otherwise it's just going to get you down. The real question is whether two Christologies, one which comes from below and goes no further, and the other from above, which sees God as the prime and only mover in the incarnation, can coexist. Hebblewaith is unwilling to exclude the authors of the myth from the church. Herein lies the contemporary dilemma. And I think that this is probably one of the key points. He has so far scarce, you know, he's been regurgitating this history and this context for us. He's been giving his commentary, he's been comparing it historically to other Christological errors, and all of that's been very helpful for for seeing that the study of Christology continues to be controversial and quite uh, relevant. Um, Here he actually gives us some of his own thought. Uh, Herein lies the contemporary dilemma the church finds herself in. In the church, or excuse me, if the church is only a human organization then different opinions and views about who uh, Christ, I think it's supposed to say is, are intolerable. If the church is only a human organization, then different opinions and views about who Christ is are tolerable. So, like, that's, that's the thing. If you view the church as just, hey, we're all, these, we're all these people and we've all come together sort of under this broad banner of Christianity, and that broad banner actually means nothing, then we're all entitled to sit around and, and have our divergent opinions. okay. But, as Scare says, because the Christian church, by definition, consists of those who confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as did Peter and the rest of the apostles, then any position which asserts that the Incarnation is a myth is intolerable. So again, if we're going to if we're going to have any actual biblical Christianity whatsoever, we're going to have to be intolerable, intolerant, or I should say, yeah, well, we're going to be intolerable too. But we're going to be intolerant of false doctrine, of false teaching, of those who say that Christ isn't true God, or He isn't true Man, or He isn't one person. We have to be intolerant of that. And of course, what does that what does that make us look like in in our context, well, the only sin is to be intolerant, right? And so we don't want to be intolerant. We want to be inclusive and we want to be nice and we want to be polite and we don't want to use nasty words like heterodox or heresy or anything like that. Um, we don't want to assert that people who hold heretical views about Christ are not Christian. But if we're willing to concede and capitulate to that, then we're also conceding and com- Capitulating Orthodox Christianity and the very definition of the church. That is, the church consists of those who confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God, um, along with Peter and the rest of the apostles. So here's what's at stake. Here's what's at stake. And the the million, I mean, again, it's incomprehensible to me, and, and I think that this is. I don't think you he can help but have this, this thought after reading what Scare here articulates. It's incomprehensible to me that voice within the church today that says we ought to be tolerant of those who don't confess the same Christ, who deny his essential aspects of his person, who deny his divinity, who deny his, div- his humanity, who deny his uh, one personness, um, or who deny his essential work on the cross. These have to be intolerable in the Christian church or the Christian church doesn't exist. We're just a confession of people who, or a collection of people, excuse me, who are sitting around confessing our own opinions. Um, So so this to me is the call for the church to recover this, again not in any kind of mean-spirited way, but in a firm and a firm way and in a conviction a way of in the way of conviction right that that we actually obey God and not man we actually respect Christ more than our neighbors we're actually more afraid of of offending and sinning against him than we are offending and sinning against someone who asserts false things about him where where do our, where are our alliances held with God or with man with Christ or with those who deny him And that really is the clarion call for us in so many ways in the church today. Christology is one of those ways in which it can be seen quite clearly. All right, let's continue then with Scare. Throughout history, the church has survived many errors in doctrine and practice. But a church which tolerates a Christology that believes the incarnation of the pre-existent logos to be quote-unquote mythical and not factual history is in the process of destroying itself hence the leniency expressed in the excellent response to the myth of god incarnate is self defeating again you, if you're lenient to these things like you're destroying the very unity you seek by offering unity you're actually destroy like it's false you're actually destroying the true unity or any chance for it If Christology does not form the matrix within which the church finds its existence, then there is no more church, only a poor imitation. So you can think of all the possible theological disagreements that one could have. Think of all the different articles of faith and all the different opinions, right, wrong, and everything in between what could be more central, more foundational than the personal work of Jesus? And if someone asserts that he's not true God, not true man, or not one person, that it, that his work on the cross is something other than the scriptures say, or they reject a part of his, uh, what the scriptures say his work on the cross is, how and in what way can we stay united with folks like this? We can't. So if we, if we find ourselves lenient towards these attitudes, um, then there really is no more church. There's only a poor imitation. Okay, so once more from Scare, if Christology does not form the matrix within which the church finds its existence, then there is no more church, only a poor imitation. The current state of Christology from below is as dangerous as any error encountered by the early church fathers. That's worth worth pondering, you know, again. Again, the the Christ the attacks on Christ, on his person and work, are every bit as alive today as they were back in the first centuries. The ancient church debated the relationship of the two natures in Christ. Modern Christology all too often understands Jesus in purely historical, human terms. Okay, so you can see there the difference. The ancient church debates the relationship of the two natures in Christ. The modern church... Are, modern Christology all too often understands Jesus in purely historical human terms. In many theological circles, even those with a distinctive Lutheran heritage, a discussion of the relationship of the divine and human natures in the person of Jesus Christ, which is faithful to the scriptures and the ecumenical councils, is impossible and is often ridiculed as theologically out of fashion and viewed as hopelessly antiquated and irrelevant. A Christology which wishes to remain faithful to Scripture and the early church creeds teaches that in the Incarnation, we encounter the Son of God, Jesus Christ. As Gerhard Ebeling points out, this was always Luther's approach, who noted that Christology must begin from below, but then must proceed so that it comes from above. Here, quoting, "...the Scriptures begin very gently and lead us on to Christ as to a man." and then to the one who is Lord over all creatures, and after that to one who is God. So do I enter delightfully and learn to know God. But the philosophers and doctors have insisted on beginning from above. We begin from below, and after that move upwards. Okay, so here we see um, then Scare identifying how, how Luther himself approached Christology Um, namely, he's not afraid to begin from below, that is, to begin with the humanity of Christ, but as Luther says, we move from the humanity of Christ to the lordship of Christ over all creatures to the identification of Christ as true God. So there's no problem in moving from from Christology from below as long as one gets to the Christology that is from above. If one just simply stops at below and uses that to negate what's from above or begins with the human nature and uses that to negate the divine nature, well, therein lies the modern problem. Okay, so then, Scare, next full paragraph, following the example of Luther, the Christology of this volume proceeds from the scriptures to the man Jesus, and from that point to the confession that Jesus is God's son, the Christ, the eternal Logos, the second person of the Holy Trinity. So, Scare's going to follow Luther in this, starting from below and moving to what is above. He continues, at the same time, the ancient creeds and the other confessions of faith contained in the Book of Concord of 1580 provide the norm by which the biblical faith is taught and confessed. And again, as Scare's pointed out, uh, one of the large appendixes to the uh, book of Concord of 1580 is the, the catalog of testimonies where you have all the statements from the Church Fathers on Christology. So again, the position here isn't just this magical book from the 16th century. The position is, in the Book of Concord, we have argument from Scripture through the history of the Church Fathers up to the present. That's going, I'm going to conform my theology to that pattern and to that confession as contained in the Book of Concord. So, that scarce point here. The scriptures are viewed, Scare continues, as the inerrant word of God, even when reflecting the historical situation in which they were composed. The scriptures' historical situation presented problems similar to those faced by the church today. For example, the denial of the resurrection of our Lord. A serious consideration of history is required if one's theology is to be truly incarnational. On this point, we agree with those who do theology from below. They start at the right place in history with the historical facts. The one who comes to us as a humble babe in Bethlehem invites us to believe that he has come from above. A failure to believe the factual accounts of the origin of Jesus of Nazareth contradicts the testimony of the historical documents themselves. This present work will attempt to answer the points raised by those who do their Christology from below and consequently are able to go no further than seeing Jesus as the one who reveals God, but who is not God himself. That's a pretty good summary for where uh, most of academic theology is today. He reveals God, but is not God himself. Um, What would a Lutheran confess along with the scriptures? He does in fact reveal God, and he alone reveals God. But he is also true God himself and is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, etc. Okay, so that takes us through chapter 1. Those of you who are on Zoom, who I can see, any questions or comments you have before we move on to to chapter 2? Okay, I see one. Right. Okay, so the question, for those of you not who, who are not able to hear, is essentially this. Uh, what about Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians? Their, their theology in general, their Christology in specific, is so overboard, so outside the pale of orthodoxy, they have been identified by the universal Christian church, I mean really all denominations of Christendom as being outside of Christianity, as defining Christ in such a way, and then probably even more specifically by moving from Christology into um, the definition of God, and the definition of God as not being one God in three persons. It's pretty much at that point where you, where you no longer have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God, that the rest of Christendom pretty much says you're out. So, because even if you look at, even if you look at uh, whether you're looking at Lutheranism, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, pretty much any, any kind of alphabet soup Protestantism, we are all going to confess together that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons are not going to make that confession. And if they get there by Christology, yeah, so be it, and they do. Um, but that's why they're out. So then that's, that's sort of like one level and the low-hanging fruit and the easy, the easy way to go about things. Now what about those within the church, within specific denominations like Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Eastern Orthodoxy? What about those within the church who end up denying uh, the divinity of Christ or end up denying the Trinity? Well, they're out too. They're just not out in this sort of categorical way that we can identify them with a public confession, like a unifying confession, like we find in Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Unitarianism. Um, But they individually, of course, are no different and ought to be denounced. Um, Their theology ought to be denounced, and they ought to be be told to repent and, and come to their senses and conform themselves to the faith that's delivered to us in the Scriptures. Yes? Where would the ELCA be in that spectrum range? Yeah, that's a great question. So the question is, where would the ELCA be? Well, I suppose it depends who you're asking in the ELCA. But the ELCA, as as a synod, is far more tolerant of false doctrine than the LCMS. The LCMS is more tolerant than it ought to be, no doubt about that. And our mechanism for addressing heresy is is basically broken. Now, in the in the ELCA, though, like there's not even a universal rec- like how do, how to articulate this. In the ELCA, you have you have all manner of theologians from those that are, you know, more or less on Christology and and on and their understanding of the Trinity, more or less orthodox. They're in the same communion as those in the ELCA, some of whom teach that that Jesus is, uh, for example, feminine. They they call instead of Christ, he's Christa, and. And, of course, now you're dealing with the person of of Jesus, especially the humanity of Jesus in the form of a male, a firstborn male. And so you are messing with the humanity of Jesus and denying that humanity of Jesus and calling him Christa. Um, Then, likewise, you have a similar neutering of the pronouns of God, whereas in Scripture God is called a he, they will call God a she. Again, you're messing with the identity of God. Um, then with the different persons, and here's where you get into full-fledged heresy, of course, like formal historic heresy, in the persons where you suggest that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of them are He's in the Scripture, by the way, and so there's attempts to mess with, I mean, how can you have a Son that's not a He, or a Father that's not a He? They're definitionally He. The Spirit's the only place where there's any room, and the pronoun chosen throughout the Scriptures for the Holy Spirit is He, okay? Okay. Now, as soon as you're going to mess with the gender of these persons, you already see how futile and how foolish that is. You're trying to change their identity, but where it becomes formal heresy and historical heresy, like this, should be easily identifiable by all, is a kind of like modalism, uh, where you say where you take Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you say that God is not Father, He is not Son, He is not Holy Spirit. God is like Father. He's like Son. He's like Holy Spirit. And then you can come along and say, He's also like Mother. He's also like Daughter. He's also like, and so then you can have God is like whatever I want Him to be like. And that's your new definition of God. There was a book that came out very early when I was a pastor, like it must have been like, must have been like the late 2000 aughts. Is that what they're called? The 2000 aughts? somewhere around 2006, 2007, something like that, was a book called The Shack. And, of course, Christians are fawning all over this book called The Shack and how wonderful it is. And there's all these Bible studies about The Shack going on in churches. <laughs> the, the Shack is a compendium of heresy. Um, it, the Shack is nothing but taking every single ancient church heresy and putting forward as it and selling it to Christians who unwittingly bought it hook line and sinker but the whole premise of the shack you remember and I oh, gosh I hope you remember I'm gonna forget the details remember where um, the character finally meets God the father and the father is a large um, african-american woman <laughs> and the, and the son is just like I think he's like this this shirtless kind of hippie guy who um, you know, It's just completely demure and subservient, like the complete 20th century beta male dream. And then the spirit is like this uh, Asian woman, this slender Asian woman or something. I mean, how on earth do you get there? Well, this is, pres- I mean, in, in this book, which is just a joke, of course, it's precisely the, it's precisely the theology of the ELCA. Neutering God... So, such that he isn't Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but is rather like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may just as easily be mother, daughter, or, or whatever you feminize, however you want to feminize the spirit. And, and some of the tell for this, by the way, is uh, in, in the ELC you have um, Trinitarian blessings or even the baptismal rite, the Trinitarian baptismal rite goes like this. In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. Now that that language like it pulls the wool over Lutheran eyes because Lutherans are probably some of the least perceptive people on these things. Um, and it pulls the wool over eyes because we go, ooh, that sounds catechetical. Doesn't the catechism describe the Father as creator and the Son as Redeemer and the Holy Spirit as sanctifier? It does. That must be right. That must be what they mean. No. And saying, and saying creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, what have they done? There's no longer gendered pronouns. There's no longer father, son, and gendered nouns, or gendered pronouns. There's no longer father, son, and Holy Spirit. There's no longer he, he, or he. There's a, an it, it, and an it. So this actually causes huge... I mean, again, if you're in a church where... A, if you're in an ELCA church where the, your pastor holds this or anything like this, you, you ought to, like, depart instantaneously. Just to simply be in the church body, even if your pastor's completely orthodox, you're in communion fellowship with people who hold this. You commune at the same table as people who deny God, who deny Christ, who deny their very identity. How can you do that in good conscience? I mean, there is, there is little more to say to those in the ELCA other than, I'm sorry the church has slid out from under you. I know you want to be a faithful Lutheran. I know you've, you've never intended anything other than to confess what you were taught in the small catechism in your confirmation classes. But what you have to realize is your church has slid out from under you and your church has become the church of what's happening now. Gender-bending delusion. And the only thing for you to do is flee to an Orthodox church that again confesses that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, one god in three persons that Christ is male truly god truly man in one person and and depart from the church that has long ago departed from you so yeah long winded but it's probably probably has to be said poses a major problem if, if someone from the ELCA comes to uh, an, an LCMS pastor and the pastor says were you baptized in the name of the father son holy spirit and they say i don't know it might have been in the name of Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. And what does that mean? And what gender is that God? It becomes a really nasty issue in terms of those practicalities. Okay, any other thoughts we have? Yeah, all right. So, as promised, as we enter chapter 2, to try to get a big picture of what Scare is doing, again, he's... In some ways, I find these chapters redundant, just to be completely honest with you. Um, in some ways, he's covering the same ground, but obviously fleshing out some important details for us and expanding here and there, introducing a few new concepts here and there. But his point here overall in this chapter seems to be that the problem in seeking for a historical Jesus like if you're going to start with your christology from below your problem is seeking the historical Christ and what you'll find is what in particular 20th century academia has done with the quest for the historical Jesus has led it, has led to complete and utter uncertainty so there's actually this group of scholars that met and each scholar was allowed took all the all the red letter words in the in the gospels all the words that Jesus said, and they were able to, to take those and assign a color to it. Green is, I think that this is definitely something Jesus said. Yellow is, I'm not sure if this is something Jesus actually said. Perhaps the community just wanted him to say it, or the author just wanted him to say it. And red is, I absolutely don't think he said it. This was definitely the, com- the community the church or some later monk or something right putting this these words into the mouth of Jesus so each scholar was entitled to do this sort of green yellow red type of thing when they all came together and gave their analysis what was actually consensus among all these scholars that is what did they all agree was green some infinitesimally small portion to where you can't actually be sure that Jesus said anything. And that's really where this, where this concludes, where Scare leads us to is, you know, like the present state of Christology from below is we, can't, we can barely even agree that this person Jesus existed and, and we think he existed, but we're not sure at all about what he said. So how helpful is that? Yeah, not helpful at all. And really, really speaks to the problem with this pseudo-scientific, rationalistic approach to the scriptures, this academic approach to the faith and the scriptures. Um, yeah, well, we'll do more thinking on that as we go along. But it really is just a heresy in disguise. It's a heresy disguised as science or, sci- or, or yeah, scientific approach. That's really all it is. Okay, so let's get into chapter 2, past and present Christological controversies. First, a beautiful quote from the Augustana, uh, the foundation of our Lutheran confessions. It is also taught among us that God the Son became man, born of the Virgin Mary, and that the two natures, divine and human, are so inseparably united in one person that there is one Christ. Okay, so... A beautiful statement of Christology, you have the two natures, divine and human, united in one person. We have all the elements of classic Christology, Chalcedonian Christology, right there. The word Christology means the study of Christ, and on that account is the topic which, more than any other, gives the Christian religion its most distinctive character. Now, what Scare does in this paragraph is something that you know, is very basic but helpful. Jesus is his personal name, of course. The angel says, you know, you shall name him Jesus, which, which means God saves, or Savior, um, for he will save the people from their sins. And so even the personal name of Jesus um, has to, has salvific import to attached to it, no doubt about it. But it is important to see that the name Jesus is simply his name, you know, Yeshua, Yeshua is a name that goes all the way throughout the Old Testament. For example, Joshua is how it's put in English. Um, And then Christ is actually a title. So that that to simply say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus is in a sense, and I don't think Scare says this, but it is in a sense the earliest, most foundational creed. Because you're saying this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. The anointed one of whom the Old Testament scriptures speak, or to put it the other way, Christ Jesus. The anointed one, the Christos, of whom all the scriptures speak, is Jesus of Nazareth. So Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ um, is actually a confession of the faith. Christ isn't his last name, that's the point. <laughs> when you go up to heaven, you're not going to see uh, you know, Jesus with a name tag that says Mr. Christ. You say, oh, you must be Jesus. Uh, no, uh, Christ is his Is name. Title is his office. Okay, um, so again, when we see that Jesus is his personal name and Christ is his office, you put those together, you have a confession, right? Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus—it's a confession of who he is. Okay, and then what on the top of eleven? Scare makes this point: the name Jesus Christ indicates the two ways. One is able to approach Christology. One way from history or from below—that is to simply, belo- you know, begin with the name Jesus, the human being Jesus—and the other way through revelation or from above—that would be to start with the name with the title Christ, and then to say, um, "Who is the Christ? Is Jesus the Christ?" So, just simply the name Jesus Christ is much more dynamic and profound than we know. Um, not only is it a confession, but then it really reveals to us the two different ways in which one may engage Christology. Okay, here on this page, he talks about Albert Schweitzer, which I think Albert's come up before. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know if he has. Hmm, maybe he hasn't, but I don't know that he's all that important. So, Yeah, well, if you want to learn more about Albert Schweitzer and if you want to learn more about Karl Barth's response to him, which is better than what Schweitzer's doing, but not nearly sufficient for Christology, um, you can read this. I think the takeaway point for us would be, if you look at the last three lines um, of this paragraph on the bottom of page 11, where Scare writes, important as the historical study of Jesus is, so that's looking at the historical study, like who Jesus was as a human being. As important as this is, it cannot be equated with Christology. If you just simply like stop at the horizon of this historical person of Jesus, you're not doing Christology. You might be doing history, but you're not doing theology. That's the distinction Scare he, he wants to show. He continues, One Lutheran theologian calls the historical study of Christ... Uh, Jesuology or Yesuology. Okay? And again, you can see that because Jesus' personal name, his historic name, and so to simply study him as a historical figure would be Yesuology, but it wouldn't yet be Christology because that's, uh, that's not a historical enterprise. That's a theological enterprise. So that's the distinction scarce laying down for us uh, here. I mean obviously both are important, but one leads into the other. The study of Jesus, must lead into the study of Christ, or the study of Christ must lead into the study of Jesus, as Scare has defined it. Okay, um, let's flip over to page 12, and again, we're we're sort of picking up, you know, midstream of thought here, but let's, let's just look at the third line from the top. The church chose to address itself to the nature of Christ's relationship to God. Even during the years of the Lord's earthly ministry, the issue which caused controversy among the religious leaders of the day was Jesus' claim to a unique relationship to God. A number of opinions were circulating to explain the great deeds which the man from Nazareth was performing. So if you're, if you're beginning at below... Um, theology below, none of Christ, I mean, no one in the first or second centuries, probably much later than that, but none of those who were opposed to Christ in the immediate history suggest that he didn't exist. <laughs> so it's kind, of, it's kind of asinine for us 2,000 years later to suggest that, like, well, maybe he didn't exist. Okay, don't you think his opponents would have taken advantage of that? So he exists, All right, and then and then what do you have after his existence? Well, you have the problem posed by his miracles. Maybe John highlights this more than the Synoptics, but but it really is just right there in all of them, I think, and and that is that people don't know what to make. This man does what only God can do. And he makes claims that no other man makes about his his relationship to God, his closeness to God, and in fact, his being God. And then he backs this up with works that none can do. And this poses a problem, because on the one hand, this man is clearly stating blasphemy. He is clearly equating himself with God. But then on the other hand, he's doing things that only God can do. How can this blasphemer be working miracles that only God can do? And that really, is the, that really is the conundrum. Well, obviously the point is, if you believe his miracles, and if you believe that these are the works of God, then you be- ought to believe that he is who he says he is, namely God's Son and God himself. And that's the, that's the whole point. But see, that's the conundrum. Um, so on, the, on level one, you have the person of Jesus. No one, no one initially denies, hey, you don't, you don't really exist. Of course he exists. Um, the, number two is his works what he claims, and what he does. Those are the controversial points. Okay, So, um, we keep that in mind then as we work from below moving up. So, a number of opinions were circulating to explain the great deeds which the man from Nazareth was performing. Some understood Jesus' relationship to God as being no different from that of the great prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah, or the more recent uh, figure, John the Baptist. However, the only explanation of his relationship to god which jesus christ himself found acceptable was peter's confession you are the christ the son of the living god so even those friendly to him you know they wanted to say he was this prophet or that prophet or um, you know whatever whatever important figure but only when peter says you are the christ the son of the living god does jesus affirm So again, that precludes us from viewing Jesus as like this nice guy or this great teacher. And of course, C.S. Lewis makes this point very well and and very eloquently, but either Jesus is a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. Because he is claiming to be God. Elijah never claimed to be God. Jeremiah never claimed to be God. And if they did, they would have been denounced. Jesus claims to be God. So you can't have this idea that Jesus is a good teacher and a faithful prophet of God, but he's not the Christ. He claims to be so if he's not and he claims to be, then he must be a liar. You can't have it both ways. Or you can only have it that he's, he's nuts. Um, and then you have to deny the miracles. Or he's a liar. The miracles are there, but they're all done by devils. I mean, that's why people accuse him of having a devil. Um, or that he's the Lord. He is who he says he is, and therefore he does what he does. Okay, well, on that meditation, we'll have to close for today. So let's pick back up with uh, 12. Again, if you're, if you're reading along, um, go ahead and read through uh, chapter 2. I, th- I think we'll get through it. There's always a chance we get into chapter 3, but I kind of doubt it. So just prepare chapter 2. You should be safe. We'll kind of hunt and peck what I think is most fruitful for us to look.